Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, Danny? How are you? Good, man. Chilling, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. Um, I can't really complain. Um, hoping to... I guess we're going to be talking about a topic that is um, not really that fun to talk about, or it's kind of... a uh, depressing to do research and to follow the story in general so um i guess you know we should just jump right into it and kind of skip over the the pleasantries um sure but we're going to be doing another episode on uh, on yemen we haven't talked about the war on yemen for a while now but for those of you who have been listening to our show for a long time now um you know we've been on for about two years doing this um, about a year and a half ago, maybe a year ago, um, probably about a year and a half ago, 18 months ago, we started doing episodes on the war in Yemen and, um, it, a lot of people didn't really know anything about it. So, uh, we were happy to continue doing it. We followed some of the Yemeni civil war, um, following the Houthis, um, along with, um, Al Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula and, uh, the Saudi blockade. And um, now I think we did a pretty good job of covering, uh, creating awareness on the conflict as well as uh, covering the D.C. politics. And now that we have a administration change in the White House, and I guess we've been doing podcasts on ancient history over uh, the past six weeks Couple at weeks, this point, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, we want to kind of do our first episode in, in more of a uh, that reflects more modern things that are going on right now. So why not talk about uh, the war on Yemen? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, t- I totally agree. I think it's it's totally a, a good time for us to talk about this with uh, the, the shift in power in the U.S. Um, but also uh, it coincides and lines up pretty well with the uh, day of um, the day of global action on the uh, Yemen war, which was just this past. Um, uh, two days ago on January 25th, uh, which we will discuss very briefly at the end. Um, but, you know, those two things combined, I think, makes this a good topic for us to bring up. And, you know, hopefully we get some new insight and we can draw some new ideas uh, from it. Uh, I, I know I personally also wanted to include, you know, some things that we learned here on the show, uh, you know, back in uh, November. Uh, when we had a guest on, Christian Sorensen, uh, who came and spoke about the military-industrial complex, and I think now after having you know that new knowledge and learning all about the MIC, 
uh, coupled with you know the current ongoings in, in the war in Yemen, I think it's a, a good time for us to make those comparisons um, and just kind of have a dialogue about you know what we can do, if anything at all, and you know uh, what to watch out for in the coming months and years. Yeah, and the goal of this episode is to explain more so the origins of the war. Um, I'm, I'm probably going to focus more on the origins of the war, and uh, Danny and I will will then focus on uh, more so the modern context and and what the pol the, the mo- like the current politics of the war. Um, so I guess I'll just start with the basic geography. Um, Yemen is a country. Yemen is a country. Yemen is a country. Yemen is a country. Um, Yemen is, yeah, we know. Yemen is located on the southern end of the, the Arabian Peninsula, and it, it's bordered with Saudi Arabia to the north. Um, you have Oman to the east, you have the Red Sea to the west of it, and you have the Gulf of Aden to the south. So it's important to understand the, geogra- the, the geography of Yemen um, to get a sense of like what the conflict actually is. So mainland Yemen and the Horn of Africa is separated so Somalia, Somalia by only a 16-mile— Places like that, yeah only a 16 mile wide strait. So it's mm-hmm. shorter than the English Channel, which makes it a transit spot from Africa to Asia. And the strait, the the Bab al-Mandeb strait is an extremely important shipping choking point. So um most exports of petroleum and natural gas from the Persian Gulf that transit the Suez Canal uh, pass through two very important shipping choking points. So you have the 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 Bab el-Mandeb Strait, which is on the west of Yemen, like the western peninsula, and then you have the Strait of Hormuz, which is on the east of the Arabian Peninsula. So the vast majority of oil fields and petroleum refinery refineries um in the Arabian Peninsula, they're all located on the east um you know within about 50 miles of the eastern coast of uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, in addition, the majority of the deep water shipping ports, they're all located on the east coast as well. So you have, in order to ship large oil tankers, you have you can't do that off the, out, off the Red Sea. You have to do it out of the Strait of Hormuz, which creates a really crowded highway of ship transit uh, because there's multiple oil exporters and there's also imports coming in and then there's also um, a bunch of navies patrolling that as well including the iran in in the united states Um, so it gets for an awful kind of a sticky situation sometimes would you agree yep yeah, totally. And, and also just to add to that, in the, Bob, uh, in the Babel mandate, there's also a lot of just other shipping going on, um, not not just oil. So yeah, there's a, other, a, there's, I mean, there's other things that are shipped there as well besides oil. I mean, there's other things that go into that country. Most of the, the countries in the Middle East, they do import a lot of goods. Now, um, Yemen is a low income country. Um, In fact, it's the poorest country in the Middle East and among the least developed countries in the world. Um, Severe droughts have ravaged their agriculture sector over the past decade, and 
uh, coffee production, which was their principal form of foreign exchange, has been steadily declining over the past 40 years. Um, a large percentage of their GDP was due to uh, Yemenis working at Saudi oil fields who would then send back money to their families. So it'd be like, you know, an illegal coming to from Mexico to the United States. They have a job and they ship money to their family or, um, over a course of five years and then they go back. Um, however, what happened is that Saudi Arabia, they expelled almost a million Yemeni workers after Yemen supported Saddam Hussein during the Gulf War. So they lost a lot of that income. And then throughout the 90s, um, Yemen was basically going through a on and off, on and off again tribal civil warfare, which really drained their economy. And as a consequence, for the past 24 years, Yemen has relied um, almost solely on foreign aid and IMF loans um, b because of the current Saudi blockade. All of Yemen's exports have been have been halted, which is about 92% petroleum and, and 8% agriculture. So they do have a petroleum sector as well that dominates their economy, and they have some agriculture. Most, um, you know, uh, undeveloped countries they they kind of uh, depend on those commodities to um, and just ship out raw goods. So. Uh, Yemen is not an ex exception there. But the thing is, they're suffering severe inflation. Um, Yemen's central bank's foreign reserves, which stood at roughly $5.2 billion prior to the war that broke out in 2015, they have been completely wiped out. And there is a social welfare fund, which is a cash transfer program for um, people in extreme poverty. Uh, that's been cashed out since 2014. And because of their lack of dollars, they can't support food imports or just or, or any critical goods such as just basic over-the-counter medicine. So we're talking about like penicillin, Benadryl, just like really common things that you can go to a local CVS or um, to just to, to buy when you're under the weather or to fight some type of bacterial infection, something pretty basic. We're not talking about like getting the cure for aids here you know what i mean so this has um turned into the world's largest humanitarian crisis um right now there are nearly one million cases of cholera in yemen and cholera is is one of the, is an example of something that is easily treatable with just like it's so clean water and, and yeah, preventable it's so it's 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 maddeningly like just so it gets me really angry to think about that in general because cholera shouldn't even be a th like a thing like it's it's very very easy to prevent and nevertheless they they've got a million cases of it which is just insane it, it yeah it's it's awful um 7 million people are at risk of famine and more than 80% of the population is in need of humanitarian assistance. The aid that does come in to help these people is often stolen. And Yemen um, has, and first, I don't like the ad, be a, be a uh, 
a uh, Debbie Downer. But if you want to get a sense of the amount of uh, human suffering and starvation that's going on in that country, uh, just type in Yemen war kid or child. And you're going to see emancipated children. And it's really terrible. It's not a, it's, it's a terrible thing to look at. And I think it's necessary to look at it to understand you know, what, what exactly it is is going on in this country. Um, children are basically just starving to death in their homes. Mm-hmm. Like the UNDP figures that every 12 minutes, a Yemeni child dies. And this was a statistic as of like, I think it was August of 2019. I can imagine it's worse now. Yeah. And they're having, and then COVID-19 just hit the area as well. I don't know. Yep, they have, they have, evidently they have the worst COVID. This is what I read. So a grain of salt here. Uh, COVID-19, they have the worst death rates in the world for, for this particular disease. Apparently it kills one in four people who test positive. But I want to say that the reason why that that statistic is so high, the percentage of people who die, is because they only test the people who end up in the hospital. Uh, they, as, as we pointed out before, have trouble getting fucking Tylenol in their country. They're definitely not getting, you know, widespread, you know, uh, testing and, and contact tracing in Yemen. That's not, that's not happening, right? So the likelihood is that the, the, the actual statistic, the, the death rate is probably much, much lower. But the fact that it looks so high is emblematic of the problem. They can't possibly, you know, test everyone or, or even be consistent with testing in general because they're fucked. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a shitty situation. And when countries end up failing, when states end up failing and uh, there's complete economic ruin and people start starving and uh, parents watch their children starve, it creates a really terrible environment for human trafficking. So Yemen is often used as a transit country for women and children from the Horn of Africa. Um, they receive fraudulent job offers in the Gulf states, but are tricked and uh, subjugated to, to, I'll be blunt, just sexual slavery. Um, according to the Department of Labor, so children in Yemen engage in the worst forms of child labor, including in commercial sexual exploitation, sometimes as a result of human trafficking and armed conflict, including by Houthi insurgent forces and other armed groups. Children also engage in child labor and fishing. Research found no evidence of a policy on the worst forms of child labor outside of child soldiering, such as commercial sexual exploitation and child trafficking. So in Yemen, um, boys, um, like teenage boys, like adolescent boys, like 13, 12, 13 years old, they're used as checkpoint guards uh, for whatever militia that they're using, that they're um you know, been kind of drafted towards. Um, so everyone's using them. Um, the Saudis are per- basically purchasing. Uh, the, the Saudis in the UAE are, are basically smuggling um, child soldiers from Sudan into Yemen. Um, multiple parties are using you know the child labor as as a cannon fodder, and then um, a lot of these kids just end up as drug smugglers. Or maybe just beggars on the street. There's a really bad homeless popula- population too, of just like young people who do not have a fucking thing. Um, right now, 233,000 people have been killed 
in the war, according to the UN Humanitarian Office. Um, the majority of these people have died of either starvation or disease. And uh, Saudi and UAE airstrikes have led to the destruction of massive amounts of internal infrastructure. So the Saudis are doing things like high-altitude high bombing from F-35s and indiscriminately bombing targets. And when they do use laser-guided missiles, I mean, there's a case where they shot a school bus, which killed about 40 children, which is absolutely ridiculous that they used a laser-guided missile to destroy, to blow up a fucking school bus. School bus. But that's a totally Saudi thing to do. Go after your children when you're, you know, when you're in the the war. Mm -hmm. Now, um, amidst the the chaos, um, Al-Qaeda and the um, Arabian Peninsula has been able to use the current situation within their recruitment efforts. Um, basically, they're recruiting. They have a market of the most voiceless people in the world right now. So I'm going to jump into the the historical background of this war because I think it's really important to understand. So, so like, like many Middle Eastern countries, Yemen is a country that doesn't really exist. It's a it's a construct. Um, it's a country in name only, but it really has none of the real characteristics that you would uh, consider to be uh, a national identity. It's completely unified in in name only. So Yemenis have really relied on indigenous tribes to regulate different regions of the country. So the southern tribes are primarily Sunni. The northern tribes are mostly Zaydi Shiites. And these different cultures and political factions, they clash in the city of Sana'a, where the central government is located, the largest city in, in Yemen. And it's smack right in the middle of the country, Sana'a. So let's try to pull this back. And this is going to get confusing, so just bear with me. Buckle up. Buckle up, <laughs> buckaroo. <laughs> In the 1800s, northern Yemen was part of the Ottoman Empire, and southern Yemen was part of the British Empire. So the British used the city of Aden as a refueling point for ships traveling through the Suez Canal. Um, Aden was technically part of India at this time, since ships traveling from Europe to India would stop in Aden. Um, They just treated it as if it were part of India. So the Brits were. I didn't like, actually know that. That's interesting. Yeah. So it, on paper, it was India. It was part of India. To the Brits in the 1800s, they were like, ah, oh, they're just a bunch of Browns anyway. They're same country, same same thing, same thing. This chunk of land, India. But I mean, that was a whole reason in the 1800s before um, oil was discovered in the Middle East. That was a primary interest. Like the Brit- the British really weren't interested in places like Iraq or Syria or Iran in the 1800s. They became interest. They were interested only on the what you call the Trucial Coast, which is like the UAE and Oman, like the East Coast, those islands there, um, Abu Dhabi. They were interested in those areas because um, there was a, a spice trade to India from from the Arabian Peninsula. So they kind of, India kind of guided their entire uh, kind of Near East foreign policy with, 
what they would call it. Um, now, they so that Aden was part of the empire. The rest of southern Yemen wasn't technically part of the administrative unit, but they had a lot of influence in there. So most of the area around Aden is, is kind of desolate. So that's like the main point that you you'd want to have. Like you know, they're not that interested in controlling these tribes but when they did you know they would use the same tactics of like divide and conquer pit tribes against each other that sort of thing now after world war one when the turks left the arabian peninsula northern yemen gained its independence and, and became a monarchy southern yemen aden is occupied by the british until the late 1960s so another 40 or so years after World War II, though, when the British and French empires started to crumble, there was a political ideology called Pan-Arabism that spread throughout the Middle East. Um, the leader of this movement is um, a guy that we've talked about a lot on this show. Um, so if you're new, it's uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who is an Egyptian colonel who overthrows the, the uh, propped up a pet king of the British at the time in Egypt. And um, when they overthrow the government, uh, Nasser becomes president about about two years later. Um, Nasser drafts up a socialist constitution and starts to nationalize the economy. So after that, country after country in the Middle East, they start to, to catch the pan-Arabist fever. And the British don't really like this. Um, they get especially upset when Nasser tries to nationalize, or he does nationalize the Suez Canal um, in order to fund the Aswan, the Aswan Dam in Egypt because, he asks, because in Egypt there's terrible flooding every single year. So they one of the big national projects that Nasser kind of rallied around was building a dam to uh, prevent the yearly flooding that of the Nile. The Nile still floods to this day. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I'm getting a little bit lost, admittedly. So I, I get the, the setup where we're, we're splitting up north and south of uh, Yemen, but like, what does this matter for the war in Yemen today? Like, how, how is that like relevant? So the important context is that northern Yemen catches the fever of pan-Arabism. So in 1962, there was a Nasserist military coup in North Yemen, uh, launching a, a massive civil war that lasts about eight years. So the Nasserists were backed by Egypt. Meanwhile, the Royalists were backed by Saudi Arabia, Israel, the U.S., and the British. How, isn't that crazy that Saudi Arabia, Israel, the U.S., and the British are all on one side in one conflict? Like, when does that ever, when does, <laughs> when does that ever happen? It's like, when's Saudi Arabia and Israel on the same side? That's crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of those rare alliances in history. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> um, I mean, so, shoot. Uh, at this point, we're, we're normalizing relationships between a lot of those uh, countries uh, and Israel. So maybe it'll happen again. Yeah, maybe sometime. Maybe <laughs> sometime in the distant, distant future, that alliance will, will um, spring will back get, up. Will spring back up. So the, um, the Nasser side eventually wins, and they create the, the Yemen Arab Republic in the north. However, this is at a major cost to Egypt. And it, it's called Egypt's Vietnam. 
They lose over 25,000 soldiers, mainly fighting a guerrilla insurgency. And while they're fighting in Yemen, this also gives Israel the opportunity to destroy their air force and invade the Sinai Peninsula. <laughs> so basically the end of Egypt, right? <laughs> so basically this was the end of Egypt. Uh, this was the end of the dream. Because the goal of um, of the pan-Arabist, of the Nasserites, they wanted to create a massive Arab super state expanding all of North Africa and all the Middle East. And they wanted to eventually... Um, absorb like Saudi Arabia and like the monarchy's oil revenues and then fun, you know, have these big national, these big state run, run, uh, ran industries um, and have like a, you know, really large welfare, social welfare uh, state. How would you, how would you categorize the like political leaning of the Nasserists and, and that um, pan-Arab like state? Like what, what kind of government would, th- would that have ideally been for them? So, is that like a representative government? Is it like communist? Is it like, what is it? I guess technically they would be a, a democratic socialist country. Okay. Um, one, one, they'd be, so they, like, I mean, they would be, they were socialists. They were admitted socialists. Um, they were, they were left-wing populists. Kind of not, we're not talking about like, you know, ISIS-style caliphate here. No, we're about no, like we're a, not talking yeah. about that at all. We're talking about secular, left-wing um Socialist, like a, a right. left-wing nationalist socialist party, right? But not so far left-wing that it's that you would describe it as communist, right? It, no, they weren't communist, but they were socialist, and they actually hated the they didn't like communist ideology. Um, yeah, but that's no, probably they, important. Yeah. They did not. They wanted to keep religion basically out of the government. What they focused right. on more was Arab nationality rather than the religious aspect. So they didn't, they didn't, they didn't want to have this type of um, religious divide within the states. So that's why they mm-hmm. focused on pan-Arabism. Pan-Arabism, the ideology comes out of Coptic, comes from Coptic Egyptians, which are mm-hmm. the Egypt, the, the Christian Egyptians. Coptic Christians, right. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the roots are to create a super state that encompasses all of the um, Arab-speaking uh, countries of the world. And they never really got that close, to be completely honest. <laughs> no. <laughs> they, they, um, Egypt But there was formed... that one bit with, with Jordan, right? With, uh, with Transjordan. Was it Transjordan at the no, time? No, it was yeah. with Syria. So Egypt oh, yeah, and Syria, Syria united into the United States. Arab Republic for a two-year period, and then the union mm-hmm. broke up. Um, because that didn't last long. It just uh, <laughs> Nasser just didn't really treat the Syrians as equal when it came to like a unity government. But Iraq, when they were going through complete chaos, because um, all these countries were going after coup after coup, Iraq tried to join the union at the end um, because they were telling them that they were about to go communist. Um, but they weren't able to be um, absorbed into the this this state. But the state was not really um, didn't really have a that much of a chance when when you think about it. Right. Um, so so getting back to Yemen though. Uh, so we have this northern section that like you know gets popular with the Nasserists, right? So they make the what what did you call them again? The northern one. The northern uh yemeni republic the yemen arab republic in the north 
But then there's also still the South, which pre- previously the British were in, right? So what happens to them? So you have so um, you have the Yemen Arab Republic in the north, and then the British leave southern Yemen in 1967, and southern Yemen reorient reorient itself to the Soviet Union. So they go full communist. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so they actually the so they actually right. create a communist state in southern mm-hmm. Yemen. So we have two states in Yemen. We have the YAR, the Yemen Arab Republic in the north, and then we have the PDRY, the People's Republic of Yemen in the south. So are you following me? Yeah, where we've created a divide, uh, a, a very clear political divide among a group of ethnic people. And the civil war does not include the South. So you would think that, I think when I first started reading about this, I just figured the North and the South split because of a civil war. The civil <laughs> yeah. war was only in the North. The South wasn't involved in the civil war. Mm-hmm. So the South did its own thing. They peeled off and became a communist country. Right. The North had the war between the, um, the, the Arab nationalists and the royalists. Now, these two new Yemens, they were, over the years, they had some border clashes, and and sometimes they had cordial relations, but eventually they agreed to merge in 1990 uh, with the president of North Yemen, um, Ali Abdallah Saleh, becoming president of the new state. And it's important to note that North Yemen had all the major population centers, and South Yemen was had Aden, <laughs> desolate, had Aden, and that was it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So did they ultimately adopt, uh, you know, uh, the leftist but not communist style of government of the north? Uh, well, the reason they, why uh, the part? reason so what happened is that when the Soviet Union fell, the southern Yemen almost entirely depended on Soviet subsidies. They had virtually no commerce or economy. So um, they comp- they were going to completely fall apart. So they went into the north Yemen. They're like, hey, you got to you gotta like bring us into the statehood because we're falling apart right here. The Soviet <laughs> yeah. Union just fell. Right. Um, so that's the end of that. That makes sense. That, that's yeah, the end that of that sense. project. <laughs> this is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But Salah is a... But Henry, communism really wasn't ever tried in earnest, and that's why it never really worked, because it wasn't. they didn't really do real communism. Yeah, I guess they didn't do real communism. Again. <laughs> Again. <laughs> it's Come on, guys. It's so easy to do real communism. You just keep fucking just it up. Just give the power to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> just give me centralized state control. That's right. how we do it. Um, <laughs> so Salah, um, he was a military commander who came to power in 1978 um, after the previous president of North Yemen was assassinated. He had actually come from a lower level tribe. He was a, a commander of a military district right off the Babel Mendeep Strait. Um, And he was able to take advantage of like smuggling opportunities and sell access to like certain cargo, like just smuggling opportunities. So he had a lot of power. And when he takes control of the state, he creates this real complex political patronage system. Um, What it's referred as um, neo-patrimonialism. do you ever hear that word, neo-patrimonialism? Nope. So, <laughs> nope. Let me explain to you what neo-patrimonialism is. Um, it refers to a system of government in which an office of power is used for personal use and gains as opposed to strict division of the private private and public spheres. Oh, so the Trump administration. Oh, yuck, 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 yuck. You really burned Donald Trump right there, Danny. Good one. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. It was just too easy. Uh, we we can also say that the the Biden administration will do the same thing. Every fucking so. political administration. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We'll talk about that in a this bit. Is, too. <laughs> but this is the definition I got from uh, a book called The Historical Dictionary of Democracy. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> but it's not really a word that's thrown around too much. But basically, mm-hmm. it means the, that the government dishes out resources for favors or 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 loyalty. Um, from either specific ethnic groups, tribes, friends, family, whatever. But the whole mm-hmm. it's basically Daniels, just the whole lot. Yeah. yeah, it's basically just a front for, to enrich certain groups. Mm-hmm. Um, it it is a state that has all the outward characteristics that make it look like a modern nation state. Like they have a president, they have elected officials, they have a legal system and a constitution, but in reality, the state's core matter is just sharing resources with their cronies. Right. So basically, you could really throw every single government in the entire world in here, but <laughs> yeah, the really real, ex- including the United <laughs> States government, especially, yeah. like with our special <laughs> interest in how yeah. in government contracting system. But uh-huh. this really refers to, ba- to almost. To, to extreme examples in countries in Africa and Eastern Europe and in the right. Middle East. Like those are like the extreme examples of it where the presidents of these countries are basically just salespeople. They're, they're salespeople right. who just sell off natural resources and fuck people. It's like, you, you want timber? Cool. You want coal? Cool. You want oil? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> it, they just, these are among the most corrupt governments in the world. Like, in Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. for an example, there is a missing amount of f- money, and the excuse was the snake ate it. <laughs> Not Zimbabwe. Yeah, it was Zimbabwe. No, it might have been Nigeria. Oh, a snake ate the money. The snake ate it. 
Um, what so snake? That, that that's the level of corruption. Iraq too is yeah. The the government in Iraq is incredibly corrupt. So that being said, um, in Yemen, the the core framework of government is provided by local tribes. So that's why it, it's necessary to set up this uh, patronage system with these local tribes. So you're picking in your your. You're picking and choosing tribes that you to enrich, that you want to ally yourself with. Um, so it's important to pick the right ones. And it's also important to have these tribes, um, the, the, the military faction of these tribes, uh, be on your side. So the Yemeni state, and you see this in Iraq as well, relies on tribal mil, uh, tribal militias to defend national territory um, against foreign and domestic aggression. And within Yemen, I don't know if you guys have ever heard, but Yemen has been a place where people have been pumping fucking AK-47s and drones and just guns like hell. Like, this place is armed and loaded. Everyone has a fucking AK-47 in their kitchen. Like, it's every family has is locked and loaded. Well, they're cheap, so you know they're cheap. The and you had just decades of warfare, so you had decades of Soviet weapons going inside the country. You had decades of of U.S. and, and uh, Israeli and Saudi Arabia finances going to the, the north to the civil war, North Yemen. You've had so much warfare that it's just there's. Just massive amounts of arms there. That's how the Houthis are able to get their hands on drone tech you know, on drones. They don't even really need to be armed by Iran. There's so many. Now, um, what this does is when you rely on these tribal militias for uh, police activity and and um, protecting your sovereign state. Right, law enforcement. Mm -hmm. What happens to the state is that they lose the monopoly of violence in the country. Therefore, <laughs> what happens when you lose the monopoly of violence in a state? Time to change the the government so that you. It's can no longer it. a state. Yep. State. The state is defined by having the ability to monopolize violence within the country. Right. And, and the offset of that is now we need to change the government so that we can regain the monopoly. Yes. That's what happens. <laughs> That's what happens after. <laughs> so this is how the Houthis came to be. So mm -hmm. the Houthis originate from the northern city of Sada in Yemen. Um, they consider themselves, wait for it, Danny. Oh, God. Here we go. Heshemites. Woo! Maybe they'll listen to me. They consider themselves Heshemites. Thus being the descendants from the Prophet Muhammad. So um, Houthis, they adhere to the Zaydi faith, which is a uh, dissident sect of Islam. Um, so uh, uh, Salafist or Orthodox Sunnis would consider them heretics. Uh, they are Shia, but actually reject Khomeiniism or Twelva, Twelver Shiism. So the... Um, Shia that is popular in Iran and Iraq. Uh, not, they, they're not the same as that. They're not the same as that. There's something very different 
to a point where it's almost it's confusing to even tell what they are. Um, Shia, but not really. Kind yeah, of. they're kind of like Alawites, like kind of a weird fringe sect of the, within the religion. Now, this, the sect was founded by Zaid ibn Ali, the leader of a failed rebellion against the Islamic Caliphate in, in 740 AD. And unlike the Iranian Shia, whose theology uh, lends itself to subjection to authority, the Zaydis hold this um, semi, uh, in like the semi uh, anarchistic worldview. So, so they're they're whoa wait hold on they're anarchists too. <laughs> I wouldn't say they're. I wouldn't go as far as say to say that they're like anarchists, but I would. They have a. They definitely have a more philosophical and rationalistic approach to their theology. Um, so, for example, they chose their. So, unlike the Iranian Shia, who's um, who they see. So, so one of the big divides in Islam is the the succession of Muhammad. So um, Sunnis believe that there's like a council that selects the succession, and then Shias believe that there's a direct lineage from the grandson uh, from Muhammad's mother's side. And the Iranians, the the Shi, the Twelver Shias follow um, Al Muhammad al Bakir, but the Zaydis preferred uh, Bakir's brother Zaid. Who and the reason why they chose him as um, as the rightful successor is because he rose up and fought a rebellion against the um, tyrants and the the caliph. Forget the dynasty at the time, seven whatever dynasty, whatever the caliphate was, was in seven forty A.D. But they saw um, El Bakir as illegitimate because he um, didn't fight against tyranny. So oh, they, okay, they so find, they like you know they they follow the strong one, right? Or at least yeah. that's what they believe. So so they're like badasses. Then they're right? kind of like they're libertarians. Like, they're, yeah, they're, they're like they're, the libertarians <laughs> of the is of the Muslim world. What's a word that we can make like ancap, but like anarcho Islamists and 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 Islam? I can't I can't do it. I'm well, according like, to John Brennan, libertarians hard. are terrorists now. So oh well, yeah. Well, Who what the deal? I knew it was only a matter of time I was going to be put on the list. <laughs> um, uh -oh. but they they had a, they had long maintained their autonomy from the state, um, but were pushed to the brink when the Saudis sent. They basically sent in fundamentalist preachers who challenged the authority of of, uh, of local religious and, and tribal authorities, and this led to a rise. Of a movement called the Believing Youth, so it was a Zaidi uh, revivalist group that eventually turned into a military force. Who would have believed that could have happened? The Houthis in two thousand four they rose up against Hadi because Hadi is a corrupt bastard, but they failed this time. Hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm getting the feeling that we're probably going to want to talk about our involvement in this and by our i mean obviously the u.s so like how, how do we how do we get you know messed into this situation good question in 2009 when obama became president um 
He wore a tan suit and that's, one of the first uh, things that happened when he became president, he was like, <laughs> I'm going to, you know, end Guantanamo Bay and um, I'm going to stop these reckless wars. And then he stepped into the old office and someone passed him. It's like, hey, ho, hey, hey, Brock, look at this remote control. He's like, what's that? The control's a drone. He's like, oh, this is pretty cool. I'm flying it. It's like, you could just push this button and it will blow shit up. And he's like, I like being president. And that's what happened. So one of the first things that Obama did was he declared a war drone, a drone war against Al-Qaeda in Somalia, Pakistan, and Yemen. And Al-Qaeda's Yemeni franchise had recently been um, blamed for the attacks um, such as the underpants bomber. Remember that? Yep, I do. And the FedEx Mm -hmm. bomb attempts. So Obama started bribing Saleh with guns and money to get permission to wage this drain war on Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula. What Saleh ends up doing, because he was at war with the Houthis before, he takes the guns and the money and he starts to go after the Houthis. So he avoid, he doesn't attack Al-Qaeda. He attacks the Houthis in the north. He's supposed to go because Al-Qaeda is in the south. Because giving money to you know these people always, you know. Because giving money to these fuckers always works out. So right. the Houthis only end up getting bigger after this. And then when the Arab Spring... Well, they're using it... They're using those drone strikes as like, you know, hey, look at this. You know, we're fighting against the, you know, the people that are just indiscriminately bombing us. It's called blowback. Right. Remember remember that uh, these people were, uh, as you pointed out before, you know, they followed the, you know, uh, Zaid who rose up and fought against tyrants, right? So, like, can you see the parallels here, right? There's like a religious connection there. There is there is a, there a theological a theological uh, connection to this rise up. Um, so when the Arab Spring swept across the Middle East, um, Yemen, like Pan Arabism, was no exception to, to uh, I guess the fever that was hidden. Can you feel it? The fever, the Arab Spring fever. Um, Yemen was not an exception. Um, Salah ends up getting his face melted off with a car bomb, but he survived. There was an assassination attempt. He almost gets killed. He's put into a hospital. He's in really bad condition. And what ends up happening is that he allegedly resigns in favor of his VP, Hadi. Hadi is the Hillary Clinton slash Saudi pick to be, to be president of Yemen. Because Saudi Arabia is involved in this patronage network as well. They have their favorites and their winners, and they have their resources and their geopolitical interest within Yemen as uh, as well. They've always had an interest in in Saudi um, in um, Yemeni policy. So they hold an election while Salah's in the hospital with a one-man ballot for Hadi. So Hadi is the incumbent president because... There's an assassination attempt on Salah. And they hold the election that they have that Hillary Clinton starts bragging about as a breakthrough in democracy has one guy on the ballot. Just one dude. Just one dude. Just one dude on the ballot. So they push the president out, Salah, out in favor of the VP. The problem is, is that Hadi was extremely unpopular. And 
when Sala wakes up, he says, I didn't agree to this. This wasn't the plan. So he brings his military to the north, and then he joins up with the Houthis. So the combined army marched down. So now Hadi and Houthis combined. They're at least an alliance. He doesn't become a Houthi, the, but the there's like... Hadi, Hadi Houthi, you know. He's, the president who was bombing him now becomes a Houthi. It's like the answer was full. If you can't beat him, join him, right? <laughs> he brings like... his, So he brings his military north, <laughs> joins up with the Houthis, and then the combined army march down to the capital, Sana. They conquer it. And that is the outbreak of the war. The, this shit sounds like a plot line in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, just fucking in the, the Baratheons flipping sides or some shit like that. You know, like like this is this is uh something else. Or not the Baratheons. Who are the who are the river folk in the middle? I forget. Um the The Red Wedding. Tyrells guy. are the flower nope. um Well the the Tullys are a the good Tullys. example too, because Tullys, thank you. Tullys. Fucking Tullys. What what is a bastard? Oh, fun di- no, fun digression. Is, is, that's not the river people, right? I'm talking about the old river dude who did the red wedding. Was he a Tully? No. The cat the Cashmere's? The Castarks? No. no, that's not the Castarks. Walter Carstarks. Frey, the Freys. Frey, yeah, the Frey. That those fuckers, right? The ones that switch sides. They're like, all right, well fuck you then. You know? <laughs> like you did me wrong, so now I'm gonna switch sides and I'm gonna fuck you up. Hold yeah. hold on, I need to explore this with you real quick. Um, okay, we're drifting. We're going to drift way off topic, but so the other day, <laughs> <Who cares? laughs> um, I was talking to I forget who I was talking to, but the conversation of like Game of Thrones bastard names came up. You know how? Oh, okay. Um, if you're a, yeah, snow, a, sand, so on. Snow, and so forth, yeah. yeah. If you're a bastard from the north, you're snow. If you're a bastard from mm. um, Dorn, you're, you're a sand. sand. Um, mm-hmm. If you're a bastard from the river country or river. So mm-hmm. I was thinking of the bastard names in cities in the U.S. So, like, if you're a bastard from <laughs> Chicago, your name would be Danny Wind, for example. Like wind. Dan- oh, he's, okay. a, wind. he's, a, he's a wind. Okay. <laughs> he's a, like Chicago, yeah, Windy yeah, City. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, uh-huh. we were trying to think of names, bastard names for U.S. cities. Oh, man. Okay. Okay, uh, New York City um, would be like either Apple, even though I hate it, uh, or like, I don't know, Lights or something like that. That's what Apple, some, my friend brought up Apple too, and I Apple hate it so too, but that's stupid. the best I one. It has it. to be two syllables. Yeah. yeah. It has to be like a quick two-syllable name. Um, <laughs> what, would, what would Florida be? Sunshine? <laughs> like, no, yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, like meth. Colorado, Rocky, Rocks. <laughs> Yeah, Danny Rocks. If Danny from, Rocks, good old Danny Rocks. Uh, <laughs> if, you're, if you're from California, you'll be uh, Snowflake <laughs> or Soy Boy. Soy Boy, <laughs> oh, yeah, Soy Boy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no, uh, yeah, avocado. <laughs> fun, fun project. I, I think about it. Just if you're a Game Hit of Thrones up. fan, it's a fun, it's a fun thought experiment. Right. All Hit right. Us up. Back, what do you think the Back the, to the war the on me- Yemen. Um, where so were we? We're, let's okay, we're get talking in, about like. So let's get into um, some more de- like the the politics of it. So we explain the history, uh, or the, at the very least, the lead up to the war at a at a high level. Um, let's get into why the Saudis have 
intervened in the war, why the U.S. backs the Saudis, and um, what exactly is the political situation on the ground? Because the reasoning that we're told that there needs to be an intervention in Yemen is because the Houthis are a Iranian proxy group, and that this is all Iran, you know, creating chaos in the region, and they're the ones that are to blame for the mass chaos and the starvation that's going on, which is surprising because every Yemeni expert that I've talked to or I've read almost uh, unanimously agrees that Iran has a limited influence with the Houthis rather than a large influence with the Houthis. Right. No, not not zero influence, which is noteworthy, but yeah. also not nearly as like big of an influence as you know this line of argumentation goes, where that we have to intervene because it's you know we we need to be a bulwark against Iran, and, you know, stretching their tendrils across you know the Middle East or something crazy like that. Well, I think it's a matter of just grouping in Shias together because the Houthis are a technically Shia group and they can just lump But we just in. explained that that's different Shias. So that's like very reductionist to say, oh, because they're both Shias, you know, they, they must be like friends, <laughs> you know, or like that they must have the same goals. Most people don't know the difference between a Sunni and a Shia, let alone different sects within the Shia. Correct. So I think it's pretty easy to... I mean, um, I just learned a ton about the the, um, the Houthi brand today. So it's, there you go. Most, most people, at least in the U.S., don't understand the division between the two sects of Islam. Asking them to understand the sex between the two sects of Islam is asking a little too much. And when someone I mean, does shit, understand it... Super, I'm someone, not even super certain about the sex between like Christianity and the United States. Like... What's the difference between a Baptist and a Methodist? I can't tell you. Well, the yeah, exactly. Like, who who thinks about this stuff? It's, but um, when they <laughs> yeah. do, when you talk to someone who do who do when they do understand like the basic that yeah, like there is a split. There is there was a schism at one point. A lot of people have like the narrative in their head like this is an ancient war that's lasted a thousand years. No, over a thousand years at this point. Um which is not really the case either. Um, it, there's been kind of like times of violence between the two sects, but now is like the most violent time in, in history between the two religions. Like it's only gotten more right. violent, not less violent. Recently. <laughs> recently. <laughs> yeah. Recently. Over the past 10 years, it's been past, since the war in Iraq, really, since 2003. Which one? One, two, or three? Three. Two? I mean, not two. Yeah, one, two, or three. Um, well, three is the war between the Sunnis and the Shias. Um, okay. Iraq war, Iraq war two is our invasion and removing Saddam Hussein. The civil right. war that breaks out after, um, we remove Saddam Hussein between the Sunnis and Shias within the region. That's Iraq war three. And then, gotcha. you know, Iraq war 3.5 is when ISIS fl- comes back into, uh, Iraq after after uh in, in Saks Mosul. So that's Iraq war. They need, to, they need to put an end to this franchise of war because I, I don't it's too it's too complicated. There's too many sequels. It's no. That needs to it, stop. There's too many sequels to it and uh it's it's bad. But yeah, asking people to know those divisions is 
it's just like an esoteric topic. Like who's interested in this stuff besides the people listening to this show right now? Um, the difference between different branches of Islam and why they're fighting with each other. Um, because prior to, all right, I think the, the most important thing to think is don't think about the, the theology that's behind a lot of these groups. Think about, at least when they're fighting each other, think about the political inclinations. So Sunni and Shia in these regions are political terms rather than like religious terms in a lot of ways. Just like in Ethiopia, where we were talking about Ethiopia about two months ago, the war that broke out. The Tigrays, right? The mm -hmm. Tigrays and the different ethnic groups are political groups because the way that they administer their country is through a form of ethnic federalism. So the same applies in the Middle East, but on a religious context. And, a minor, and on, a, they, on also, a tribal on a tribal level. Yeah, and a tribal and a religious context. But likely when one religion gains power, one government, they dish out favoritism. Again, going back to our our word of the day, which Patrio is something neo patrimonialism. Neo patrimonialism. When neo, that is I'm never gonna remember that word. <laughs> neo patrimonialism, the word of the day, when you dish out favors based off um, some sort of um, political, religious, or ethnic term, um, it creates this type of environment where the other side is forced to band together. Now, the invasion of Saudi Arabia, all these wars are for some type of kind of Machiavellian geopolitical interest at the end of the day. Like, what does Saudi Arabia have to gain out, out of that? Well, I guess number one is they can say that they're keeping they can portray themselves as a regional power they've never really been a military power ever saudi arabia has never had a strong military in there not they haven't had a strong military until they sacked Mecca. despite having a lot of money and a lot of weapons <laughs> 1920 or whatever so it's been they've never really been a strong military influence they had the money they, they had like the to funds. pretend like they are though yeah they like to pretend like they are but they're not really and the there's also a lot of pipeline politics as well uh, between avoiding certain straits. And we talked about this in our last episode, in our last episode about Yemen, but um, there's pipeline politics between um, creating more port access to other parts of Yemen where Saudi Arabia needs to have kind of extend their patronage network. But I don't think that's just the reason. I think there's a lot of, re I mean, like every single war, there's a lot of reasons rolled up into one. So um, kind of banning it, combining it into uh, or blaming one reason other than uh, taking all the reasons and, and kind of evaluating them together um, is, is kind of is ignorant and not um, fruitful when examining these conflicts um, if you just depended on one thing like if the iraq war if you just say the war was for oil or only or if the war was only for the petrodollar only or or if the vietnam war the war was only about the domino effect only like you're not really getting to the root of the issues now for the u.s the u the u.s's influence and, and i want to concentrate on this um it's purely out of MIC contracting. It's purely out of, of just profit. Industrial. 
and, and I, I did a lot, a lot of research on this on this particular topic. But you know, what what you know, how do you want to set this up? Like, what what do you think is important to know on a high level? So I think it's important to talk about Raytheon, um, and just the overall, am I like the the U.S. military contractors' influence on prolonging the war. Okay, so let's talk about it. Um, and and Raytheon will be a huge focus, but um, there are definitely other groups as well that that will that will bring up. So, I, specifically Raytheon, um, but other weapons manufacturers have like this interest in in war in general, right? The, the premise is really fucking simple. If you make guns and you sell bombs, war is means profits for you right so i I think i don't think that's a hard concept to get around your head so specifically when we're talking about the military industrial complex and its relationship to the war in yemen it's like impossible for you to separate the two right a war in yemen is inherently good for raytheon because that means that they can make a lot of money and i have a lot of you know evidence to back that up so you know obviously as we've um you know been been talking about there's been a lot of parties involved in the war in yemen and the U.S. has been one of the bigger ones, right? Primarily through weapon sales, though. Uh, so we sell a ton of weapons to Saudi Arabia and you know some of their partners, and those weapons um, are, you know, in no uncertain terms, they're used to kill Yemenis, right? We sell them weapons; they kill Yemenis with those weapons. Uh, now, Raytheon specifically happens to be the second largest arms manufacturer in the world. Uh, and they are a major provider uh, of these weapons, and they have super, super close ties to Saudi Arabia. Um, so they actually were one of the first people to build, one of the first weapons manufacturers specifically, uh, to build a like a, a permanent base there. Uh, that happened around the 1960s. And they even uh, was neo-patrimonialism, right? Is that is that the word? Did I say that correctly? Neo-patrimonialism. Right. The neo-patrimonialism here was that they ended up hiring a bunch of the Saudi royal family to act as consultants for them, right? Uh, so just to get in good uh, with the with the royal family, they just hired a bunch of them. And um, they've been operating um, a, uh, a branch in Riyadh uh, since 2017. Uh, so here's some stats. After the war like officially began in 2015... Raytheon stock price went from about $108 to more than $180 in 2019. That's billions of dollars uh, in weapon sales and lots of fucking profit, like too much profit. That is that is an 80% gain in, in four years. That's unheard of. It's crazy. So repeat um, that. that. So I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. 
We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done. Especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Repeat that figure one more time. I just want to make sure. Yeah, 2015. March 2015, specifically. This is when the war started. If you looked at Raytheon stock price, you wanted to buy one stock of Raytheon. It's $108. If you looked at it again in 2019, at the end of 2019, it was $180. So that's a uh, four-year period, 2015 to 2019. goes from about $100 to about $180. It's like an 80% bump. Who needs needs to get GameStop stocks? (laughs) Good one. Yeah, that's a a good insertion here. Yeah, because GameStop stocks today jump like crazy because of a, an unrelated issue but like this is like the real the real money is here but the right? ultimate way to you know where you know the the conversation is coming up about um um short shorting short stocks um mm-hmm. with this with the GameStop. um oh shit i think you're onto something and it's just the ultimate way of manipulating a value of a stock price is to go short the shit short the shit out of raytheon let's do it yeah let's short, do it short short yeah they'll fucking drone strike your house <laughs> yeah right dude that's um, what the damn. that's what all these new domestic terror laws coming out um john brennan got on was on msnbc and basically labeled mm-hmm. like every single person who's <laughs> who's um not left of Rachel Maddow, a potential terrorist. <laughs> like he, he called out libertarians at the end. He was like, "Yeah, we need to talk about libertarian, like, like uh, white supremacist, uh, a whole list of All like." Right. Well, I think li- white know, supremacists is fair. fair white supremacists, like, he lumps the libertarians generally. Like, yeah, that's not I don't, I don't, what no, a I don't cocksucker. That guy <laughs> is a like, fucking fuck piece up. of shit. <laughs> yeah, God, I totally. hate. Wait, wait, I hate wait, wait, paint with the broadest. Wait, broadest possible brush there like every single libertarian yeah, you're all fucking terrorists yeah no fuck that um so hopefully i don't get in too much trouble because i am still gunning for that hashemite king position that we were talking about before um but well, hey uh, man if there's gonna be a new <laughs> if, there, if there's gonna be a new country that we can form maybe we can carve up another part of sliver of yemen they seem to be divided maybe we can get a nice little spot for a, a new monarchist uh, monarchy over there and yeah, maybe. All you got to do is just uh, suck John Brennan's dick, and then maybe we'll get there. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, so let's talk about a, a little bit. It was back to Raytheon here. Um, so there's this guy. Uh, he was the vice president of business development and the CEO of Raytheon. His name is John Harris II. So John here um, was asked by CNBC in, in February of 2019 to do an interview uh, about Raytheon's bombs being used in Yemen. This is a direct quote from his response. And you're going to fucking love this shit. 
We are an element of the U.S. policy. Our role is not to make policy. Our role is to comply with it. I'm just going to let that sit for a second. Um, because if you're not following so far and, and you haven't made the connections yet, I'm, I'm about to let it, let it rip. So we're talking about a company who directly profits from the sale of arms. A company who, as I pointed out, made an 80% stock gain in a four-year period because of a war in Yemen is trying to tell you or any of us, CNBC specifically, that they're not uh, uh, making policy, they're just complying with U.S. policy is bullshit. <laughs> like, it's bullshit because it, and, and we're about to talk a little bit more about lobbying and things like that, but it, like, it is, it is bold-faced bullshit. All you need to do is follow the money. And, and, and also follow the people that they put in power. So let's let's do that for a moment. Or so, and look and, at the think tanks they fund. Oh, yeah, seriously. Like, yeah, they, it's, yeah, it's they don't no. make policy. Don't the think tanks don't. My that's ass. not they're there for to think about these crazy yeah. shit. Yeah, my ass. And and by the way, I'm about to rip up Democrats, Republicans, and no no one is safe uh, from now on from the, for the rest of the show. No one is safe. Uh, okay, so both Obama so get and ready, Trump, snowflake. <laughs> right. Fuck your feelings. I'm about to drop some facts on you. Um, so, okay, Obama and Trump are definitely like like our prime suspects for the last you know several years uh, in this particular issue because both of them have employed or uh, uh, appointed Raytheon lobbyists to serve in senior roles uh, in the Defense Department. So, the ones I'm going to talk about here are William Lynn and Mark Esper, and Biden, brand new dude, right? Uh, just chose General Lloyd Austin, and he sits on the Raytheon board, and he chose him for defense secretary. And basically, this guy just went right through the confirmation process, which happened on the 19th. Um, so uh, so just as a setup, <laughs> we've got three Raytheon people, lobbyists, serving in high Defense Department roles. It's, it's, you, it's, you want to tell me? You want to tell me again that Raytheon isn't making policy? It's it's interesting that um, Biden <laughs> went with the Raytheon board member than the yeah. Lockheed Martin oh, lobbyist. I mean, it could have been one or the yeah, other. Yeah, he chose between <laughs> you know? two. But to Joe mm -hmm. Biden's defense, I don't really complicate him very often. But um, Lloyd Austin is a way better pick than Michelle Flournoy. Well, yeah. I mean, if you were choosing between those two, sure, I would also pick. Uh, um, Lloyd Austin, but, the, but the, Lloyd Austin, the, the, I'm gonna actually jump to the defense of Lloyd. I, I rarely put in put in this position. Lloyd Austin, obviously, he's um, corrupted in the process as being a Raytheon lobbyist, but mm -hmm. we're working with a relatively low bar right here. So just bear with me. He's better <laughs> mm -hmm. than most people on, on a lot of this stuff. He actually, because he was in charge of, um, um, Lloyd Austin was um, Syncom. Yeah, he was CENTCOM. So he, Central Command, yeah. Mm -hmm. So he was actually um, one of the guys in, in the context of Yemen who wanted to work with the Houthis to fight al-Qaeda. He was like, why are we – we should actually – they identified the Houthis as a group that they wanted to ally with and use as a proxy to fight al-Qaeda. A lot of the guys in the CIA over there were like, we, we'd rather work with the Houthis than, than the people who – blew up the USS Cole and did 
But then again, you know, like our policymakers right now, if they could, they rather they ra- they rather convince the Americans that Hezbollah did nine eleven than Al Qaeda <laughs> did at this point. So yeah, I mean, look, look, you're right, and I think I'm being a bit pessimistic here. But I'm pointing this out on purpose because no, I know, think it's I think things are fickle, and there's obviously the the the, the interest there. So no, point right. point pointed out. Like I'm not sold on him. I'm just saying compared right. to other um, people within I mean, the defense industry and like like Biden's been on a bit of a uh, like progressive tear lately. So maybe he'll surprise us. And he's he's seen uh, he said uh, kind of. Uh, that he was going to uh, uh, end U.S. support for the war, uh, but he was super vague about it. And then he goes and picks, you know, Lloyd Austin, who happens to be a Raytheon guy. And yeah, is he better than most of the picks that you could probably do? Sure, but like uh, in context, we're t- like I am not super confident that a mega company, second largest arms manufacturer in the world, Raytheon, isn't going to pull some favors to make sure that they keep making money off of something right and so that i'm not confident that you know even if it is you know uh uh, uh lloyd austin uh and even if biden said that he was going to end you know support for the u.s war i'm just not con- i'm not confident in that and it, and and if we look at the history of it both through obama and and trump you know we're we're not seeing any of the the progression the forward motion that we should be you know, and if we're talking about Obama, you know, like he's obviously played a big role in starting the war there, you know, because he gave Saudi Arabia that green light uh, to go ahead and attack. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Ultimately, this was like, I don't want to absolve Saudi Arabia, right? Like it, it wasn't Obama who said, who like directed them to go to war, but he also said, well, all right, well, we'll do what you got to do, you know? Um and you to know, placate he, the Saudis, that was his verbiage. So, exactly. To placate they, the Saudis. Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia was upset over the Iran deal. So mm-hmm. they had to throw them a bone, saying, All right, well then we'll support this foreign intervention that you have. Exactly. And the way that they decided to support it was in a huge increase in US arms sales to to uh basically all foreign governments, but specifically Saudi Arabia, so that they can keep up this this uh, uh, you know attack on Yemen and um, some stats here. Uh, U.S. arms exports uh, in 2013 went from 6.9. Bi- excuse me, in 2009 it went from 6.9 billion uh, to 8.7 billion in 2012. So that's a huge fucking jump. We're talking about billions of dollars in increases, uh, and that's according to the uh, Stockholm International Peace Research Institute's database. And that's a 25 percent increase. When we're already talking about billions of dollars and 25% on top of billions of dollars is nuts, nuts. Uh, And uh, specifically, uh, out of that increase, uh, exports to Saudi Arabia increased. And this was uh, 4,489% between 2008 and 2012. And then again, between 2013 and 2017. So we're crossing both uh, Trump and uh, Obama's presidencies here uh during both of these terms we're talking about a four thousand four hundred and eighty nine percent increase in weapons exports insane insane 
And 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 the argument has always been that this is, you know, fucking defensive support. Such bullshit because they're not using it for defense. Like what <laughs> I, I never heard of a you know, a fucking laser guided missile on a on a bus being considered defense. You know, and this 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 is just nuts. Yes, it's a defensive war to uh, blockade a the poorest country in the Middle East and right. um, just bomb the living shit out of them mm-hmm. because and, of I, Iran influence. And when was the last time any type of Shia? Because that's what the the big concern is: is right. the Shia is the new enemy. Therefore, we take the side of here. Here is what happened. We screwed up so bad in Iraq War II by empowering the Shia population, by removing the Sunni strongman, empowering the majority Shia Shia population, that now that we have to, the rest of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East is correcting our mistakes. Mm -hmm. And correcting our mistakes means um, siding with the Sunni radicals, and I, I mean Sunni radicals. I don't mean Sunnis, like everyday Sunnis. I mean like Wahhabist Salafist. Right. Because they're the, the best choppers. fighters. Mm-hmm. The head choppers. The moderate rebels. And siding with Al-Qaeda in areas in Syria and in and the Arabian Peninsula in, in right. Yemen. Because that's what we're doing. Like we're on the yeah. same side as Al-Qaeda. And, and the thing is that it, we keep like going back and forth about it too it, it, we're not like consistently on uh, on a side the only side that we're on is on Raytheon's side because there was a point where you know um obama had agreed to to halt uh, um new uh raytheon bombs uh being sent to uh to saudi arabia and this was already after uh the the bombs had been purchased they just hadn't been you know uh um shipped yet right and so obama because he's he's getting a lot of flack for this and like you know uh specifically a lot of progressives were calling this shit out and so he stopped uh at the end of his term a shipment uh of weapons to uh yemen and you know doesn't make up for the fact that there was plenty of years of him you know increasing the sales and like providing logistical support to saudi arabia so that they can murder yemenis um doesn't make up for that but like you know better something than nothing and he he put a halt to it but literally a couple months later when trump is in office you know he then um uh he he puts up thomas kennedy um as uh so thomas kennedy is a, a representative of raytheon um and he and thomas kennedy uh they end up going to Saudi Arabia in May of 2017. Remember that first international visit that he did, you know, where he's like putting his hand on the globe and shit, right? Yeah. Who could forget? <laughs> right. right. So, so Thomas Kennedy, Raytheon guy, Raytheon guy is in, involved in this. And then like the day after Trump approves the shipment of the weapons that Obama blocked. But also, like you know, not to stick up for for Trump, but like he he might have just done it because oh Trump, oh Obama didn't want to send the the weapons. You know what? I'll send you the weapons. Fuck Obama. You know, like it could have been that, but I'm pretty sure his mentality, that... Trump's mentality was, <laughs> look at this. Like he looks at everything. He looked at everything. I still speak about him as he's still in office. Um, yeah, right. He looked at everything as transactional. So. Mm-hmm. 
I don't think he ever looked at when he said the right things about wars in the Middle East. I don't think he was ever really looking at it in a moral sense. He was always looking at it at a, in a practical sense, right? Which, with that same logic, though, you can see how he can see the um, see how it's practical to sell arms to Saudi Arabia while right. they're essentially committing a genocide. Because in his dogs. mind, yeah, we're, it's we're just sell them in his mind, it's. These Muslims are pit, are killing these Muslims. If we don't sell them weapons, someone else is. Like that's his. Yeah. I think that was his mindset. Like, yep, hundred like, percent. Why not sell them? These Muslims hate these Muslims. Why not do it? Mm-hmm. Like, right. It's fucked up. And then, then like moving on, you know, Mark Esper, uh, who was also, uh, I, I believe, it was on the board of Raytheon, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he's definitely Raytheon affiliated, becomes the Secretary of the Army, and then eventually SecDef, so Secretary of Defense, and that was in July of 2019, uh, until just this past November when he stepped down. Um, and you know, during uh, his confirmation hearings, um, Esper basically refused to recuse himself or say that he would recuse himself from decisions that would affect Raytheon. So he was asked, you know, hey, if you come up with a situation where, you know, this might affect, you know, bomb sales for Raytheon, would you recuse yourself from from that decision making process? And he was like, nope. <laughs> so fucking savage. Um, who else do we have? Uh, okay, there's this guy, Charles Faulkner. Yeah, Charles Faulkner. Uh, he was a lobbyist uh, um, for defense procurement uh, for uh, Raytheon. And uh, he actually was removed from his post, but he he was basically he basically fast tracked a eight billion dollar Raytheon arms sale to Saudi Arabia, um, and he was the acting uh, assistant secretary of state. Uh, and what else? Um, oh, David Urban, uh, who this guy was apparently in the same class at West Point with Mark Esper and uh, Mike Pompeo. And they call themselves the West Point Mafia, which I think is fucking stupid. Um, but what he was. Losers. <laughs> uh, so he was he was a lobbyist uh, that Raytheon had uh, got some support for, um, and I, if I'm if I'm getting this correct, I think he was a part of the McKeon Group. Um, so there's this uh, defense industry lobbying firm, um, one of the two bigger ones. Uh, there's the American Defense uh, American Defense International and McKeon Group, but. Um, this McKean group is actually pretty interesting. So that was actually founded by uh, a uh, former representative from California's um, from California. Uh, his name was Buck McKean, and uh, he served on the uh, Armed Services Committee from '91 to 2014. And go figure, his largest campaign donors come from Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and he basically McKean group lobbies on behalf of you know, these arms sales people, but also they lobby on behalf of Saudi Arabia, like the government of Saudi Arabia. So they are a registered, like, foreign agent, essentially. Um, And in 2018, uh, there was going to be this vote that came up uh, to end the U.S. involvement in Yemen. You might remember it. This was the Bernie Sanders and uh, Mike Lee bill, right? Um, And... uh, what ended up happening was that McKeon group, the McKeon group hit up Jim Inhofe, uh, who at the time was the armed services committee chair. And he, they had a conversation 
And that conversation was on the record as being on behalf of Saudi Arabia, like in their capacity uh, to do uh, lobbying. And the next day, Inhofe voted in favor of continuing U.S. support to Saudi Arabia. And after that, the day after that, McKean Group donated $1,000 to the senator. So $1,000 was all it cost for, you know, Inhofe to continue a war in Yemen. $1,000 to continue. In fairness, I think like 2,500 bucks is the, is, is the most that, that you can get, but like in, in any given fiscal year, but a thousand dollars, that's, that's the price. That is Jim Inhofe's price. It's surprisingly cheap to buy a politician. I can if fucking buy want, a politician at that rate. <laughs> you know, it, it's not expensive to to purchase one. If you look at like the contra- like the campaign contributions, yeah, we're talking about like two thousand dollar contributions, and they're right. like, sure, well, I'll change my vote based on two thousand dollars to my campaign. Right. Thanks. Well, like, fuck my fuck my constituents. Fuck morality. Sure. Fuck fuck the people of Yemen. I got two thousand dollars. I got a thousand dollars. Well, they believe the hype. Well, they'll, they'll you justify it to yourself. You're like, oh, well, you know, Iran is the greatest threat for terrorism in the world. Yeah, <laughs> Just protecting the U.S. These guys know what they're talking about. And if I happen to get a thousand bucks out of it, great. I rather you know, have the two thousand dollars than not have the two thousand dollars. Exactly. Iran is the largest sponsor of terrorism in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'll take it. Look, Which Muslims I mean, like, are we killing again? <laughs> Great. I oh, mean, like, look, I, I think I think I, I've made it abundantly clear about Raytheon. They, they don't. They, they're not following U.S. policy. They're making U.S. policy. And and no, are they directly writing it? Probably not. But they are definitely having the backhand. You know, the backroom phone calls and and all this other stuff to make sure that what what makes them money keeps happening. And I think at this point, I want to turn to you know a previous episode that we did that I actually used uh, again in preparation for this particular episode. And that was the, the episode uh, um, Understanding the War Industry. And that was back in November of 2020. And on that, we had an awesome uh, uh, guest, and that was Christian Sorensen. And he was uh, he's a former, former uh, um, Air Force veteran. He's an author of, of the book Understanding the War Industry. Um, and uh, he's also a part of the Eisenhower Media Network, which, you know, uh, we like there. And, um, you know, th- this guy was super, super knowledgeable. And if you want, if this pissed you off and you want to know, you want to be more pissed off and you want to find out a bit more, I would definitely listen to this episode um, because he spells out to a T like how entrenched the military industrial complex or the military industrial and congressional triangle which is what he refers it to it as because he includes the congress there just how this is all set up and it's frustrating and it's fucking annoying and i actually went and listened to it again because you know i in preparation for this episode i wanted to find out like what can we do about it what's the next step it seems like it's this unending cycle and all the way at the end of that episode uh, and i won't spoil it too much but you know i think you know christian is super smart but he also he puts forward two options for en- for ending the cycle that I don't think are v- are viable in a pragmatic way. Um, so on th- on that's the only point that I'm not a hundred percent with him on. His two options are that we nationalize war corporations, 
Uh, but good luck doing that because, you know, Capitol Hill is basically bought by those war corporations. So that'll never, like, that legislation will never happen. Um, and then the, the second one would be, I mean, the way he describes it, you know, when I was listening to it again the second time around, it, it feels like a like a communist rule. <laughs> like it felt a little bit like it. Uh, but he talked about it in, in, in more pragmatic terms. He says that we democratize the workplace. And he basically says that on a local level. That's what it's called. Exactly. That's that's that's, <laughs> that's what. I mean, those were his words. Like I socialism. Had to, I, had to... <laughs> I mean, that's what that's democratizing the workplace is socialism. Um, right. Christian's a great guy. He, I'm he is not a socialist. He's super super smart. But uh, but on this point, what? I feel like his his and I'll quote him here. He says it, it would take clear communications and patience, but it can be pulled off. And I just don't agree. I don't think that we have clear communication, and I don't think that we have patience. Uh, so therefore, I don't think we can pull this off. Yeah, but I might be being overly pessimistic, right? But the the point that we're getting at here is now that we have Biden, right? And Biden has at least, in a way, signaled that he wants to end support there. But on the other hand, has just recently appointed someone from Raytheon, you know, leaves you begging the question: What do we do now? Right. And I mentioned earlier that, you know, just earlier this week, January 25th, um, was the global day of action for the Yemen war. And I actually asked you about this, Henry, beforehand. And I'm like, hey, did you did you hear about this? And and, and what'd you say? I did not hear about this. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gives you <laughs> in a fucked up kind of way. It's emblematic of how helpful that global day of action was that even people like us who follow this shit who do a lot of research on it who have been covering it for a while not only did we not hear about it but like literally the impacts of it have not been felt it came and went and i doubt it's going to make a difference and and what's fucked up about it is that like a bunch of people uh attended i think it was like danny glover spoke at it and like a bunch of other folks um not just them i, I wrote it down somewhere but like if you go and google it now there's not like any there's more articles about talking about the day of action than talking about the outcomes of the day of action. So, yeah, it's it's kind of um, it's, I had not heard about the day of action until you told me right before the show, um, which is I'm usually pretty plugged into things like this, which is surprising. Um, it may have just been because I've been busy. But mm. I was actively preparing for this show this week, so right. it wasn't like the fact I that wasn't it, like, didn't jump out looking, was reading articles about Yemen. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting that not a single article or I, not a single comment or just I did not hear a thing about this. Here's um, some here's some people who who were in attendance. So it was a uh, protest, uh, both an in person protest uh, and an online rally. Uh, that happened at 7 p.m. online rally. An online rally. That's probably why nothing happened. Yeah. Nobody stormed the Capitol. That sounds real (laughs) infected. An online (laughs) rally. Let's have an online rally. Right. So so that's that's the thing. Here are some of the speakers included. Cornell West, Danny Glover, Shireen Almeida from the U.S., uh, Danielle Obono from France, Yanis Varek something from Greece, and Jeremy Corbyn. A lot of people on that list, I have no idea who they are. Right. So a lot of people on the list, you're not going to get mass support because 
no disrespect to the progressives who listen to this show, but most people are going to look at that list and they're going to bat, a, bat an eye and be like, there's just a bunch of socialist commies on that list. Because that's what it mm-hmm. was. Jeremy Corbyn, Danny Glover. Um, Cornell West. Cornell West. They're all mm-hmm. admitted socialist. Right. So... But I mean, where where Most, were the where were the anti-war say libertarians out there? You know, I like, don't. Like, we didn't hear they, about it. The anti-war. <laughs> you guys didn't even hear about it. You know? I didn't hear so about like, it. But people. We have to redo I, this. Um, follow and speak mm-hmm. to um, who are libertarians who are anti-war. Didn't hear like I don't. I, they never they never mentioned anything to me. It's something you wouldn't keep secret. You know, like it's not something that you're like, oh, this is this cool party. I'm not going to let them know about this. Like this is something that anyone with remote (laughs) interest you would want to you want to rally. But so the far left fucked it up and kept it to themselves, and then you know just basically like nothing happened. (laughs) I don't. I think that yelling at buildings and protesting doesn't really solve too much. To be completely honest, Um, what are we going to do? You know, like clearly voting doesn't matter because all of those Congress people are bought. For a thousand bucks, I can tell your your congressman to tell you to go fuck yourself. Uh, and um, uh, as you point out, yelling at buildings and doing protests doesn't work either. So, and and then for for Christian Sorensen, he pointed out that we should do a like either nationalize war corporations. That's not going to happen, um, or do a straight up socialist revolt and democratize the workplace. Uh, there are other options also, besides. I'm, I'm really interested in hearing some those. real like other and options. One one option is that you can you can you can lobby yourself. You can pick up a phone and call Congress. You can go to Washington D.C. and Congress. Like it's so ridiculous that these people, um, you know, barge into the Capitol. You know, you're able you're able to speak to Congress legally. <laughs> so it's, you can talk to them. Right. You're able to create a meeting and lobby on your own behalf or behalf of some, um, some policy that you're trying to achieve. Like, right. It, it's more about changing culture because war, here's the thing about war in the U S um, since the Iraq war, we've been so it's such an afterthought in most people. Most people don't really think about our military presence, um, most people don't really think we have one anymore because, um, and this is a good thing, is that our casualty rates have significantly dropped right. since the height of the Iraq war or the insurgency in our, the, the, the insurgency after the Iraq war. which mm-hmm. is of course Our casualty thing. rates have dropped, not uh, others. Um, yeah, our casualty. But um, when there's not like a... A story every single day coming out about groups of soldiers dying. I think it becomes out of mind. I think people barely notice. It. A lot of people don't really notice the presence that um, that we have or the extent of influence that we have. But what's interesting is that more and more right wingers are um, getting fed up with a lot of the intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I swear to God, I was with my brother-in-law um, about, this is probably about a month ago or so. It was before the election. Mm-hmm. We were watching Laura Ingram. And mm-hmm. Laura Ingram was super conservative. 
Um, I'm pretty sure that she was very pro Iraq War. Um, she's a ten o'clock slot at, after right. uh, Sean Hannity, mm-hmm. and she went on a ten minute rant about pointless wars and pulling troops out of Afghanistan. Like we need to end these pointless wars, and mm-hmm. I was like, what? And I was just my brother and I were brother in law and I were watching this and we we're like, what? This is bizarro world. Like what's right. going on right now? Since when is this a thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, shit, I welcome it. Like if, if, you know, if Laura Ingram wants to join the camp of an, the anti-war camp, she's welcome. Right. Like everyone is welcome on the, the anti-war train. If, if you ask me, um, you just stop it. All it, all, all are welcome. Um, so we're at well over an hour and a half. Let's, stop Hmm. this episode on but let's keep recording for our patreons and let's extend the conversation i want to talk a little bit more about um some unadulterated opinions and (laughs) maybe a little bit more about this gamestop shit yeah (laughs) but then it's good all right peace guys oh wait before we end this um Make sure that you rate and review the podcast. Um, really appreciate you guys joining us for another episode. So um, as you notice, we kind of went de- back to our roots a little bit, talking about um, you know modern Middle East, Middle Eastern conflicts. Um, of course, doing this too because we still want to stay engaged. Uh, but we're also going to be bringing you history episodes as well, like we've been doing for the past five weeks or so. Um, so more to come on both types of episodes Um, whether it be uh, modern geopolitics or historical topics. um, The feedback that we get is is good on both, so we'll do both. Um, And to support the show, make sure that you rate and review the show. Um, We are at like 417 reviews, which is awesome. Um, It really helps us grow. And if you want to further support our show, you can support us at um, Patreon-Bro-History. uh, for um, as low as a dollar a month, um, we'll get you access to post-show content um, along with our Slack where we talk to each other. And it's a fun group. It's a good group in there um, that we have in our Slack. It's, it's, um, yep. I, get the, I think Danny and I get the most out of it because we really do enjoy <laughs> yeah. communicating with you guys. But, yeah, get access to that. It's a fun group. And um, we will um, see you on the other side. Peace. Peace. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.